You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Today we're going to look at an element of church membership that is far too easy to overlook. If you are newer to our church, let me explain that about once every four months, uh, we have a Sunday in the life of our church that's called New Member Sunday. It's a Sunday when we invite and welcome our new members into the church. If someone is entering membership, they've never been baptized, we baptize them as well, and we take that opportunity to focus on an element of church life. And as we do that, we can focus so much on what the church is meant to look like and how the church is meant to function that we ignore the fundamental question of who is meant to make up the church? Who is church membership for? Should church membership be open to everyone, regardless of belief, lifestyle, worldview, or should it be restricted in some way? Now, the Bible's answer to this question is very simple. Church membership is for those who are born again. Those who are born again, and that's it. This is the one thing that is necessary for membership in the universal church, the invisible church of Christ, and to local churches. There, there may be other issues Sound issues, not sound issues relating to the gospel. (laughs) Sound issues today. I think you can hear me now. There may be other issues that make it unwise to enter membership at a particular local church. For example, if you believe in the ordination of women into pastoral ministry, it may be unwise to become a member at a church that believes, as the historic church has always believed, that ordination is for men alone. But the only necessary condition for membership is that a person be born again. Now, these days, the term born again has more political ramifications than spiritual ones, because as we hear with our neighbors down to the south, uh, to be born again is to have uh, political allegiances. Uh, You belong to a particular political party. But the Bible's definition of being born again is much different and much more important. Now, a few years ago, I was at our annual Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference, the one that I just returned to uh, uh, from a couple weeks ago, and C.J. Mahaney preached a sermon on Psalm 126. And I'll never forget one of the main points of the sermon. He urged this room full of pastors and their wives and ministry leaders, he urged us all to never lose the awe at our own conversion to never lose the awe at our own conversion. My my first response to that exhortation was mild confusion because after all, I was born in a Christian home, uh, went to church every Sunday with my family, uh, always lived as a self-professing believer. But this missed the fact that everyone who truly trusts in Christ has been converted at one state of their life or another, 
Whether we grew up in a Christian home or a Hindu or a Muslim or a secular home, all of us had to be converted from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. All of us needed to be made alive in Christ. And that is what the Bible calls being born again. Or the the more formal theological word is regeneration. We needed to be regenerated. We needed to be renewed in in our spiritual lives. There's, There's nothing more important to building a healthy church than ensuring that the members are regenerated, that they are born again. Too many churches have fractured, divided, and dissolved because they had unregenerate memberships. These churches tend to run in a way that is detached and divorced from the Bible. They they tend to aim to building churches that look nothing like the New Testament church. Or or they, they get into conflict with one another and they have no idea how to forgive and to reconcile with one another because they don't take the commands of God seriously. Church members must be born again. And that's one of the reasons why we and many other faithful churches have such an extensive membership process. I mean, one of our objectives is, is, yes, to educate you and to let you know what our doctrine is, but, but the other part of the objective and the, the main part of the objective is to ensure that those who are entering membership are truly born again, that there are signs and evidence of God's gracious work in your life. Now, this doesn't mean that only those who are born again are are welcome to our services and welcome to participate in our small groups and our, our, you know, our events. That is not at all what this means. We're actually in a unique season right now where we have more non-members with us on a Sunday than our actual members. Everyone who is sincerely seeking Christ and wants to learn more about how to grow closer to God is welcome to join us. But when it comes to membership, that is the body of people Men and women who make up, serve in, and represent the church, they must, they must be born again. John Calvin himself wrote this, no man can be truly united to the church so as to be reckoned among the children of God until he has been previously renewed. Renewed in spirit. Renewed through spiritual regeneration. So today we're going to consider what it means to be born again by looking at the most important text in the New Testament on the new birth in John chapter three, where the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus and explains the necessity, the agent, and the means of the new birth. Let's let's read our text together, John chapter three, verses one to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The title of this sermon is, You Must Be Born Again. And we have three points today. First, the necessity of the new birth. Second, the agent of new birth. And third, the means of new birth. Now, verse one tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he was a ruler of the Jews. We are meant to picture Nicodemus as an exceedingly religious man. He was part of an elite religious sect that devoted itself to studying God's word and obeying God's commands. Now, we know if you've read the Gospels that many of the Pharisees were hypocrites. They they used their religious states, their devotion as a means of exalting themselves, making much of themselves so that people would applaud them and honor them. And Jesus called them out for that, for acting in their own self-interest, It's one of the reasons why they conspired to kill him. They hated him. But some of the Pharisees had a genuine desire to know God. And so when Jesus appeared performing miraculous works and teaching God's word with authority, some of them were genuinely interested. And Nicodemus appears to have been one of them. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We're told in verse 2 that Nicodemus came by night, likely because he was concerned about his peers, his fellow Pharisees, finding out that he also was interested in learning more from this man from Nazareth, this rabbi named Jesus. He had what you could call a healthy dose of the fear of man. But he also came with a genuine interest in hearing what Jesus had to say. He calls him rabbi, a a title of respect for a religious teacher, and says that he knows that he comes from God because he performs signs that someone could only do if God was with him. Now, he doesn't go so far as to call Jesus a prophet. He definitely doesn't go so far as to call Jesus the Messiah or the Son of God. He's not making a profession of faith here, but he knows that Jesus has a divine mandate from God to do God's works and to spread God's message. He seems to be on the right track. You know, you might expect if if we were in Jesus' shoes, we would would then lead him through a discipleship course and explain, you know, the four spiritual laws, you know, make sure that he he believes the right things. But, But Jesus, he takes a more radical approach to this man. He has a shocking message for him in verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this this Pharisee, 
devotion to God and his piety, all his spiritual interest in Jesus, all his efforts to know God and obey God are completely meaningless and vain unless he is born again. He may see the miracles of God, but he will not see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In verse 5, Jesus calls this entering the kingdom of God. To, to see the kingdom through the eyes of faith is to enter the kingdom and to be part of the kingdom. But what, what is the kingdom of God? A crucial question to ask and answer about this text. Now, some say that the kingdom of God is merely a synonym for heaven. So Jesus is saying, well, you're not going to enter heaven. You're not going to die from this life and transition to the next life and enter the good place rather than go to the bad place unless you're born again. And that's true in the sense that heaven is the kingdom of God in its perfection. That is where the king reigns perfectly and he is recognized perfectly as the king. But when Jesus began his ministry, Throughout all the Gospels, he, he announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. He even said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the kingdom is not just in the future, it is in the present. When, when the king, you could say, when, when the king of kings, the king of the kingdom of God came into the world, he brought his kingdom with him. And he demonstrated that by performing his miracles he wasn't just performing miracles for our sake so that our suffering, our affliction could be alleviated. He performed kingdoms to, he performed miracles to show that the kingdom of God had broken into the world. He cast out demons and healed the sick to foreshadow the day when every tear will be wiped away and our final enemy is crushed under his feet. When the kingdom of God would appear in its fullness. And Jesus came to show us the kingdom and to invite us to enter it. God's kingdom is present wherever the king is worshipped and obeyed. So that as more and more people believe the gospel, are born again, and are saved from God's judgment, the further the kingdom spreads. That's why Jesus uses the parable of the mustard seed. It begins as the smallest seed in the garden, but over time, it grows up to be the largest plant. It's growing, and it will continue to grow until Christ returns. But the message of this text, the message of Jesus to Nicodemus and to all of us, is that in order for us to enter the kingdom, we must be born again. We must be born into the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom. Jesus says this twice in verse 3 and verse 5. And in both cases, he says, truly, Truly, when Jesus uses this phrase, truly, truly, he is emphasizing the importance and the weightiness of that statement. This is the truth of truths. There, is, there can be no doubt about this. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist reformed preacher, pastor in the 19th century in England, at a time when there were many religious people. I mean, the default was to be born as a Christian. It was a Christian nation. And so he was very aware that he was preaching to a congregation that was full of people who were religious, like Nicodemus, 
but not born again. This is what he said in his sermon on John chapter three. You go to your churches and your chapels. You attend the house of God. You take care that there is some form of religion observed in your family. Your children are not left without hearing the name of Jesus. So far, so good. God forbid that I should say a word against it. But remember, it is bad because you do not go further. All this is of no avail whatever for admitting you into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Spurgeon reminds us through the lens of John chapter three that being religious is not sufficient. Going to church on Sundays is not sufficient. Going to a Christian school is not sufficient. Leading your family in devotions is not sufficient. Committing yourself to living by the Ten Commandments is not sufficient. None of it is sufficient unless one is born again into the kingdom of God. We need life, life to enter our souls, life that comes from another realm. We need spiritual resurrection. We who were spiritually dead need to be made spiritually alive in order to enter the kingdom of God. But the question is, who who is responsible for this spiritual resurrection? Where does the new birth come from? Who, Who is the one who is acting to bring about this conversion. Now, it certainly doesn't come from us. I mean, if a dead man can't bring himself to life physically, a spiritually dead man can't bring himself to life spiritually. We need need someone else to act on us, someone outside of ourselves. And the Bible's answer is that that someone is the Holy Spirit. This leads to our second point, the agent of new birth. Nicodemus is obviously having trouble with this concept of being born again. In verse four, he intentionally uses this kind of ridiculous image of a a grown man re-entering his mother's womb and being born again. He's like, is Jesus, is that what you're saying? I mean, it's dripping with his skepticism, but, but Jesus stays with him and he patiently explains how this comes about in verse five. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some find a reference to baptism in verse five when it says one is born of water. They take Jesus as saying that, well, you must be baptized in in order to enter the kingdom of God. And certainly Catholic doctrine would teach that. You need to be baptized into the church as an infant for the remission of original sin in order to kind of begin your walk with God. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, if if you read the rest of the chapter, just read the rest of John chapter three, the first thing you'll notice is that Jesus doesn't talk about baptism at all. And if baptism was so necessary to enter the kingdom of God, you would expect him to give a detailed exposition of the necessity and theology of baptism. But he doesn't mention it at all. The best interpretation of this phrase, born of water and the spirit, is to see being born of water and the spirit as as one unit, not two distinct acts or two distinct experiences. There are two ways of describing one thing. I mean, this isn't the first time we see this parallel between the spirit and water. A a little later on in John chapter seven, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. And John says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit moves into our hearts like water and flows out of our hearts to be a blessing to others like water. He, he refreshes us, cleanses us, and uses us. But more importantly, we see the same parallel between water and the Spirit in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, this wonderful prophecy of the good and the beauty and the power of the new covenant. The prophet Ezekiel writes, I will sprinkle, he's speaking in, in God's voice here, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen here, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is one of the most powerful images of what Jesus has come to do, the, the blessing of the new covenant. As God puts his spirit in us, he cleanses us like clean water, washing away our guilt and our shame, and we are made pure. And then he gives us new hearts. Note that language. The, prophet, the prophecy is not just, I will, I will refine your heart, I will purify your heart. No, I will give you a new heart. We, we don't just need a heart polishing. We need a heart transplant. So when Jesus says that we must be born of water and the spirit, he's talking about the cleansing work of the spirit and the regenerating work of the spirit. And Jesus explains why this is necessary in verse six. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. When we are born physically, it brings about no spiritual benefit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I mean, you are, you are made in the image of God. Uh, you are made to worship God. You are made to know God, love God, obey God's commands. You, you are made to use your mind, your, your intellectual capacities to study the world, to cultivate the world, but you are born spiritually dead. When a baby is born and takes his first breath, he does not take his first spiritual breath because what is born of flesh is flesh. In order to be born spiritually, the Holy Spirit must act and give new life. Now this sounded incredibly strange to Nicodemus, and perhaps it sounds strange to us as well, especially in an age of science when everything that we believe as a society has to be observable and testable. And here we're talking about some unseen realities, unseen work in your heart, in a, in a very, re, very real part of your being that cannot be seen, observed, or tested. But Jesus says, in verse seven, do not marvel. Do not marvel at this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Because there, there is so much in the world that we actually do not understand. Things that, that even today, with all our technology and all our knowledge, science cannot explain. The analogy that Jesus uses is, is he, he points to the wind in verse eight. People back then didn't know where the wind came from or where it went after it touched them. It was this unseen force. They didn't have meteorology or satellites. The wind was this unseen force moving in unseen ways into unseen places. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
The Spirit moves in us like the wind moves around us, unseen and yet clearly there. In his commentary on this passage, D.A. Carson writes this, we hear the wind sound, watch the swaying grasses, see the clouds scudding by, hide in fear before the worst wind storms. So it is with the Spirit. We can neither control him nor understand him. But that does not mean we cannot witness his effects. Where the spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. My friends, this this is a crucial part of the doctrine of regeneration. People aren't just born again. They are born again to a new way of living. Where, Where the spirit works, his effects are undeniable and unmistakable as he gives people new desires, new affections, and new power to obey God's commands. To be born again is to be a new creation in Christ. And that's that's not just something that happens at one point in your life when you responded to that altar call or you accepted Jesus into your heart or you were baptized into the church. To be born again is to have a completely transformed life. You live a new way by forsaking the old way. You, you put off the old self and you put on the new self. And your life is no longer characterized by the kinds of things that characterize the, the world that is not born again. The things that characterize our culture, sensuality, greed, division, envy, anger, self-righteousness, jealousy, pride. Those things no longer characterize the one who is truly born again. Instead, they're characterized by purity, contentment, gratitude, compassion, love. That's when you know that the Spirit has blown upon a person and brought them to life. The Spirit's effects are unmistakable and undeniable. But how does this happen? How does the spirit bring about new life, new spiritual life, regeneration? What is the mechanism that the spirit uses to bring about new birth? And this leads to our final point, the means of new birth. Nicodemus can only muster one final question before he falls silent. He asks in verse nine, how how can these things be? How is this possible, Jesus? I mean, how, how did I miss what the Old Testament teaches about the necessity of the new birth. Up until then, I mean, obviously Nicodemus had assumed that he was right with God. He was on the right track. He was doing what he needed to be part of the kingdom of God and to enter the kingdom of God. But all this talk about being born again is making him very uncomfortable. And so Jesus begins with a correction before he extends an invitation. He corrects Nicodemus in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? and yet you do not understand these things? I mean, Nicodemus should have known about the new birth. It's in the Old Testament. We just looked at Ezekiel chapter 36. And James tells us that that not many of you should be teachers because you will be held to to a higher standard. You will be judged with greater strictness, and, and it's no different with the teachers of the law. They were held to a higher standard. So Jesus has to correct him. You should know these things. You're a teacher of the Bible. And then Jesus decides not to 
give Nicodemus solid food when he hasn't taken in the milk? If he doesn't believe earthly things, how will he believe heavenly things? And Jesus has so much more to say about this because as verse 13 says, he, he came from heaven. And when he came from heaven, he, he came into the world bringing heavenly wisdom with him. He has so much more to say about this. But Nicodemus isn't ready for it and neither are we until we are born again. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus and he tells us how we can be born again in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. My friends, this is the key to being born again. This is the source of regeneration. We, we look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and we believe. That's how the Spirit works. The Spirit opens the eyes of our faith to see Christ crucified, not just as a man suffering, as an innocent, guilty uh, man who is made guilty by the, the corrupt counsel that existed in the world. We don't, we don't just see it through a historical lens. We see it through the eyes of faith, and we believe that here is the Son of God crucified on behalf of sinners. We believe that he died for our sins, that he took our place, that he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And we believe that the only way that we can be right with God is through faith in this crucified Savior. That is how we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. That, that is the moment when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And that's how we inherit eternal life. Jesus says whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You, you receive eternal life that begins now. Not in the future, not after you die, but now. The eternal life that Jesus has come to bring us begins the moment that we look at him lifted up on the cross and believe. Jesus said in John chapter 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You can have eternal life right now because eternal life is not a matter of duration. The eternal life is a matter of relationship with God. It is not eternal life to drink from the, the, the chalice that gives you immortality. That is not life. We cannot have life apart from the fountain of life, God himself. We have eternal life both now and for eternity when we have God himself through faith in our crucified Savior. Jesus compares his lifting up to Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21. You remember that story? As the people grumbled, they've been delivered from Egypt. God has led them through the Red Sea. You heard about this from Pastor Steve Kim last week. And they're grumbling and they're complaining. And God disciplines them by sending fiery serpents that start biting people right, left, and center. People are dying, they're getting poisoned, they're sick. And they, they confess their sins and they say, Moses, pray to God on our behalf that we would be healed. And God instructs Moses 
to, to, to fashion a bronze serpent and to lift it up so that everyone who looks at that bronze serpent would be healed. And that is what happened. And that wasn't because the bronze serpent had any power in itself. God is not giving them some magical talisman that will bring about healing no matter where you come from or what you believe. In fact, I know some of you may know this, in the times of King Hezekiah, the bronze serpent was still there in Judah and people were worshiping it. And people were making offerings to it and King Hezekiah had to tear it down and burn it. They had forgotten that their ancestors were not saved by the snake. They were saved because of their faith in God's promise to heal them and to save them from his judgment. And it's the same with the cross. We aren't saved from God's judgment by looking at a piece of wood fashioned in the shape of a cross. We're not saved by understanding the message of the cross or by nodding our assent to the cross. We are saved by believing in the one who hung on the cross. We are saved when we realize that we, that we also are infected with the poison of sin. And that the only way for us to be cured from that poison is, is to look to God's provision in his exalted, lifted up son on that cross. And God heals us, not because we deserved it, but because of his mercy. So let me ask you the most important question you could ever answer in your life. Are you born again? Are you born again? Do people look at your life and say, the Spirit has been at work here? The wind of the Spirit has blown over you and given you a new way of living. Have you made a decisive break from your old way of life or from the way of the world and embraced a new way of living for God and for His glory? Or is there really no difference between how you live, what you love, what you think about, how you spend your time, and the rest of the unbelieving world? Now, one of the most important ways to diagnose our own spiritual state, to discern whether we are truly born again, is to consider how, how do we respond to God's commands that he has given to us in the Bible? I mean, Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Do you keep Jesus' commandments? Do you know Jesus' commandments? I mean, far too many self-professing Christians have no idea what Jesus has commanded, and nor do they really care. I mean, they may have grown up with some basic knowledge of the Ten Commandments, but did you know that Jesus has given us new commandments? He's commanded us to love one another. Not just kind of this vague general love of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not stealing anybody, but are, are we committing ourselves to love one another as Christ has loved us? I mean, that's the, that's the standard that he holds us to. That's the new command that he has issued to us. And if one is truly born again, you say, Lord, I, I want to follow your ways. I want to live in the kingdom that I am now a part of. I want to obey your commands. By the grace that you supply. 
Many people think that as long as they were baptized or as long as they responded to that altar call at that conference, as long as they accepted Jesus into their hearts, as long as they are religious and they go to church every Sunday, that, that, that they're part of the kingdom of God. They're fine with God. But my friends, none of that is the new birth. They may be the signs of the new birth, but they are not the new birth itself. That is not regeneration. New life in the spirit results in a new life that is lived to the glory of God. New life, you could say, results in happy obedience to our Savior. Now, don't get me wrong, we are all going to go through seasons when obedience is hard. I mean, especially when we're spiritual infants. I mean, any of the parents here know that obedience is hard for children. And the same is true when we are spiritual infants. Obedience is hard. But as you grow up, obedience becomes easier and easier as the Spirit works to write his law on your heart. And you start doing what pleases God and what obeys the commandments of our Lord by instinct. That, that is the promise of sanctification for the Christian. That we are saved to a new way of living that becomes more and more natural for us as the Spirit works within us. So if you can't say that you have been born again with confidence, you're like, well, that's not me. I can't say that the Spirit has worked undeniably and unmistakably in my heart. Then Jesus calls you today to, to see him lifted up on the cross for your sins, for your cleansing, for your regeneration, that, that you would experience conversion from, from death to life. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you were good enough, but merely because you looked. You, you look and you live. You, you look at the cross and you find life in the blood of Christ. And you will be born again by the mercy of God. Jesus was covered in your shame so that you could be covered by his righteousness. Jesus died so that you could die to sin and Jesus rose to life so that you could live a new life and be born again. Now, if you are here today and you have experienced the new birth, then I encourage you to remember that lesson that, that I have worked to remember since that conference to never lose the awe of your own conversion. I mean, you were, you were lost. You were dead. You were a rebel in God's kingdom, and Jesus rescued you. The Spirit worked in you, and you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. What mercy, what reason to rejoice every day. I mean, Christian you should be the happiest person that your coworkers, your family members, and your friends know. Not, not like an, an airy, fluffy happiness, but a deep, abiding joy. Because Christ has given you new life. The Spirit has blown in your soul, and you have been brought to new life. And so I encourage you, I encourage you to make a regular habit of celebrating your own Conversion. You can do that publicly and you can do that privately. Publicly, we do that every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. 
We, we do it together as we celebrate the fact that Christ's body was given for us, Christ's blood was spilled for us. We take the elements, we celebrate the fact that Christ died for us. But you can do that privately in your own prayer life to give thanks to God for your own conversion. And may we, my brothers and sisters, commit ourselves to living in the new way, in the new life that the Spirit has given us as citizens of the kingdom that we are already a part of, the redeemed people of the Lord Jesus Christ, born again by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about this unseen reality in the unseen parts of our lives, we are freshly humbled by how little we truly know. It's the things that are unseen that are eternal. The things that we see, our careers, our businesses, our bank accounts, our professions, our careers, the pandemic, the things that are seen, those are temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see the unseen. And that you would work in the unseen parts of our souls. For those who are not yet in Christ, that you would give them the gift of regeneration, the gift of new life, that they'd be alive in Christ. They'd experience the joy of knowing him and being united to him. For those who have already been born again, we pray for a fresh reminder to celebrate your mercy that we do not deserve. May all glory be to your name and your name alone. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.